Hey everyone, welcome back to the Farming for Passive Income show where we strive to educate the agricultural community on investing in commercial real estate and growing their business. Today, we have a guest speaker, Jesse Dickens, who has a background in the medical field, which is crazy because now he does investing, but technically both. So he does cardiovascular sonography, director of operations at the Mobile Imaging Center in Denver, Colorado. Love that place. And he started multifamily investing in 2020. Jesse, how did you come from doing medical to multifamily? What's the story, man? And welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Casey. Really appreciate it. And uh, it's it's a long story, but I'll give you kind of the abbreviated version. Back in uh, 2019, before uh, when life was kind of normal, we hadn't heard of this phrase, COVID-19. Uh, life was pretty good. Just had a pretty simple life pretty straightforward and then my son was born and the pandemic hit and my entire world shifted and uh, I just kind of realized some of the flaws and fallacies um, that I had come to just take as as normal uh, in my work life professional life and really just got uncomfortable very uncomfortable with how everything was 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 moving and trending uh, and I'm very grateful for that because that led me to the path of commercial real estate so dived into a bunch of education, like a lot of people read Rich Dad Poor Dad, got in, involved with bigger pockets and landed on rental real estate and specifically multifamily investing, trying to build a passive income portfolio. So uh, all of that happened fairly quickly, joined an educational program, got educated on it, met my partners, started buying properties. So that is the, uh, the abbreviated version of it that, that got us here today. That sounds so familiar to me. The same thing happened for me. I don't have a child at this point, but yeah, it kind of made my skin crawl when everything started getting locked down. I don't know if it was the same for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, the world shut down around us and we were still in the walls of the hospital. And, um, you know, it's a, it's kind of an eerie time period to even look back on, even though it was only a couple of years ago. Uh, and we were, Grateful that we could get in there and uh, and help out uh, as much as we can with with some sick patients, but uh, just the ugly side of corporate healthcare, I think, was revealed to me. So uh, I, you know, had a chance to 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 see that for what it really was, and and get to make a decision from there of, that I didn't want to be part of that. So yeah, yeah. sounded like a huge mindset shift as well. Totally, uh, I I think we really get conditioned into whatever kind of mindset you know, our, our parents or whatever generation before us, uh, grew up with. And it, it's a very different generation from what, I don't know how old you are, but looks like we're about the same age. And, uh, you know, the world that my parents grew up in is very different from the world that I grew up in. And it's going to be very different from the world that my child grows up in. Uh, so you can only pass down the information that you have. And I was very conditioned to just go through the, the rigors of, you know, you go to school, you work hard, uh, you get a good job, you, contribute to your 401k and then everything will kind of just take care of itself. Right. Uh, and I, you know, I just, I don't believe that to be the case anymore. So really made a decision to, to grab my financial future, my family's financial future, uh, and just, and just take control of that and, and create something. Spearheading your own future. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's tons of different options out there. You know, you mentioned, you know, kind of being stuck, you're hating the corporate life, 
you had a mindset shift and then you're doing multifamily there. So what was that journey like from the turning point to what you're doing now? It was interesting because these two worlds have really, they've had to blend together. I still work full time in the medical field and I, I, I do love what I do. I love the patient care aspect of what I do, but want to be able to do that specifically for the physicians that I, that I want to, when I want to, at what locations, what kind of capacity, and not have that be the driving force of, you know, paying, making the mortgage payment, putting food on the table, have, do that because I love that and I want to keep that skill set up and I want to continue to see patients. So this has been a transition of while working full time, being able to get educated and find opportunities and find partners. So I, on every single lunch break, I was, you know, downloading education and I was, I was getting connected and making phone calls and networking. Uh, and then I get, you know, a lot of times we talk about the, the, the riches are really made in the, the five to nines. So five to 9 AM and then five to 9 PM, like, you know, once your day is done, your day is really just getting started. So it, it's really been, uh, uh, it's been hard to, to be completely honest. It, it hasn't been an easy path just to be able to start to create. And it's, you know, this is not a get rich quick kind of scheme. This is a building wealth over time, which I'm totally on board with because it's a proven, it's a very proven method. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's something for me that, it, you know, I think there's relatively low risk, and relatively low volatility. If you look at the trends of real estate over time, especially commercial real estate, they just they always go up over at every 10 year period they're they're going up. So, you know, any kind of uh, ups and downs in the market, it, you know, they they get smoothed out over time. So that's something for me and my family felt very comfortable with. Yeah, I love it. So within commercial real estate, you dove into that. I'm sure you thought about single family back when bigger pockets, I went down the same rabbit hole that you did, which is pretty funny. And I was like, Oh, should I go burr in Indiana, like buy it, rehab it, rent it, refinance, and just repeat that process, which is actually, which is almost what I started doing before I pivoted um, into syndications. But it, it's very, it's not very scalable. So is that kind of why you geared towards commercial and specifically multi? Absolutely. And I, and I dabbled in single family myself. I, I kind of sat on the sidelines doing a little bit of analysis paralysis in the beginning and just knew I needed to do something to get the ball rolling and build that momentum. So I invested passively in a fix and flip with someone that I knew that was working on a project and I could just be kind of the private money lender on that. Uh, and it wasn't a super high return, but it, you know, he kind of showed me behind the behind the curtains of what was going on and, and did a little bit of mentorship with that. And it was great. And we did that and yeah, project went well, did that again, the project went well, I stepped out and did a flip on my own. Uh, and then quickly realized that flipping is just, it's just not for me. I don't, that's not my skill set. I don't come from that kind of background. Wait, you don't want to be on HGTV or something? <laughs> yeah, I mean, HGTV, I, I still watch it every once in a while. I'm not going to lie. But um, I think we just, all do. Come on. Yeah. And I, I just realized that that's just not, not for me. And like you said, the scalability, not that you can't scale that, but it, you're still creating a, an active income in, in the sense that like, so I, I did this flip, we made some money on it. 
and then but that stops right there until you find the next project and the work that we are doing is to build this passive port portfolio to you know we do all this work to find good opportunities but once you do that that property is going to pay you dividends for as long as you're going to hold it whether you're going to do a refinance on it whether you're just going to hold it long term with long-term debt whether you're going to sell it in you know in five years i mean that's probably our our earliest sell cycle would be probably a five-year window and um but you're you're getting dividends throughout the entire life of that and it doesn't mean that there's no work that is involved if you're an active yeah. investor you know you're still managing your managers you're still you know we invest out of state so we like to be at our properties at least a couple times a year to check in on things um and just just kind of see it in person um so it's not completely passive when you're actually on the active side but my goal is to be more of a passive investor later on in my investing career i almost want to kind of go backwards with it and do the active now to build that up and then be able to just invest in other people's deals and let them do the work and, and reap the benefits from it. Yeah, exactly. I thought that was a really good point. Um, you know, comparing flipping versus, you know, passive income where your income is being generated on different sides of the balance sheet, basically, right? Like you're building your equity and from a passive standpoint, you're getting real dividends um, and when you compare those dividends in real estate compared to other dividends in the stock market, it just doesn't make too much sense in, in multiple angles. But um, yeah, so when you think about multifamily, there's five, well, there's more than five, but the asset classes within commercial, there's like self-storage, there's industrial, office, a couple others. Why? Why multifamily? Did it just attract you? Or you mentioned an educational program that you went into earlier. Did they mostly do multifamily or how did you get down that path? Yeah. So the program that I went to is strictly multifamily. We don't focus on anything else. We're kind of a one trick pony. Um, it, and for me, it's just a core need in life, regardless of what kind of technology is coming out. Uh, you know, there's, I, I kind of suffer from shiny object syndrome. So I get very uh, intrigued by other investing, you know, and I think looking at cryptocurrency is like the, the perfect example of that, you know, and over this past, up until whatever, three, six months ago, there was this very big shiny object syndrome of like, hey, Bitcoin's going to go to 200,000 by the end of the year. And like, this is just, you know, we're on this rocket ship and it's just going to, that's going to take you to where you need to go. And, uh, and I like, I jumped in on that knowing absolutely nothing about it. Um, and you know, kind of, kind of got burned a little bit and it was a great lesson in just like the psychology of investing and the herd mentality and how it's so easy to get wrapped up in seeing what other people are doing and make decisions that are not based on, on your own truth and, and the facts that you know. It's just based on what other people are doing with multifamily people will, there's never going to be a point in time where people do not need a place to live. This is not a new thing. This is a tried and true tested asset class. And, and that's not to say that other asset classes within commercial are not like that. Um, 
you know, there's also mobile home parks. That's all, that's also another, you know, core uh, facet of living. Self-storage is something that I'm sure will always be needed some in some capacity. Um, I definitely was a little bit afraid of retail because of online shopping and, and Amazon. It just really disrupted that entire asset class. I just cannot imagine a world where multifamily is disrupted in that sense. So for me, it just made the most sense to say people will always need a place to live. This is the this is the place that I want to be. And we're so we're so undersupplied as far as housing goes in our country at the time. And it had been for a while. And with the constraints on building, I don't see a, a time period in the next five to 10 years where that where that is going to change. And maybe 3D printing is something that that changes that down the road, but I think that's technology that is is far, far away as far as building homes and, and apartment complexes. So to me, it's the it's the safest route to go. Mm-hmm. So really looking at the risk profiles, I mean, and the long-term stability of it, really. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's really smart. I mean, I'm right there with you. Everyone's going to need a place to stay and what really intrigued me about it was when I first got into this, because I liked being a landlord in the single family space. I like providing good housing, um, a nice place to stay, you know, being a good landlord and all that. And so, you know, taking that just one step further into multifamily, you know, also makes a ton of sense and makes kind of makes you feel good. I mean, I don't know how do you feel the same way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't have couldn't really summed it up any better. So what, I think you were operating in two markets, is that correct? Yep. So most of our holdings are in Tucson, Arizona. It's just a market that, that we've loved, been very drawn to that, have bought three assets down there over the past 18 months, and we're currently under contract on a large property in Greenville, South Carolina. So that's a, a, a new market that we're entering, and we plan on being there for an extended period of time. I've heard a few things about Greenville. What's going on in Greenville? Yeah, so it's uh, there's there's a little bit of whisper going on around the things that are making that a hot market. Uh, it's been on my radar personally for almost two years. Um, one of the great things about it is that it's super centrally located between. It's on the. I'm from the East Coast, so I know I know the East Coast uh, pretty well. It's on the I-85 corridor, so that's like the major uh, highway that runs north and south. It, along kind of the East Coast. And it's directly located, centrally located between Atlanta and Charlotte. So it's, as we've transferred to this remote working from home kind of template, that is clearly a long-term thing. That's not something that we just did through COVID. Now everyone's back in the office. Now companies are really trying to focus on how do we continue to grow and scale while working remotely, working one or two days a week in the office. So what's happened in the workforce, what we've seen in the data that we're looking at is that people want to live, people are not necessarily drawn to very busy metro areas, even if their job is there. So if you can go work in Charlotte or Atlanta and you can, uh, you can, work, you can live in a place like Greenville that is an hour and a half away it's basically living at 60 cents on the dollar and it's a beautiful emerging market 
people are looking for those types of places and this this net migration that we're seeing really to the southeast or along the sunbelt states we just that was a trend that was going on pre-covid covid just totally uh, expedited that process and we see that just continuing so the the research that we have done has really pointed us in that direction and that's why we landed on tucson a couple of years ago Tucson, arizona as you probably know has been so off the charts as mm-hmm. far as investors moving there that it's been it's been difficult to find deals that meet our criteria so we're looking for those other emerging markets and try to be a step ahead of that so that's how we landed on uh, the wonderful city of greenville south carolina i love it man and you mentioned your criteria so what are your your criteria your framework into what you're going after in those markets and specifically in the deals if you don't mind sharing for us no, not at all. So we do kind of your typical value add deals, whether they're B and C class. We look at, so when we're looking at classes, you've got your A class apartments. So that's where you're, you've got your new bills that have these fancy amenities and um, it really, really high end kind of stuff. We are not completely opposed to doing A class, but it typically doesn't make sense for us because we're looking for a little bit more meat on the bone as far as value that we can come in and add. So in the B and C class, you're looking at more workforce housing. And we still have in the B class, we still have some amenities. The, pro- the property that we're currently under contract on has a pool, has a fitness center, has a clubhouse, has those things. They're a little bit outdated. It, the property itself is about 40 years old, which is totally within the window that we're, that we're open to looking at. Um, so it just anything needs, like past 1980, basically. Yeah, we're looking at the, in the 1980s. We're we're okay with 70s, um, but we would really like to stay in the 1975 and and newer. Uh, so that's kind of our, our general framework. We're we're always open to look at stuff that's older than that, but the the risk profile changes when you get older than that, and you need to really look at the kind of the, those major capex systems and see how they're doing. So, um, so we're looking for stuff that we can come in either operationally, whether it's through better property management or just through putting money in the property that's been neglected, whether it's deferred maintenance, whether it's just updating units. So kind of your typical value add play. We know these markets, we know what we can be achieving in rents. So it's just a matter of how can we systematically come in and, and, and execute on that business plan. As far as return metrics go, it's again, we're kind of uh, kind of standard with what we're looking for. We look for an average annual return of no less than 18%. We really want to be at that 20% average annual return or higher. Uh, and that's going to be a, a blend between cash flow and then your proceeds, either at your refinance or sale. We like to underwrite stuff where, especially right now, where you don't have to, you're not banking on a refinance. We don't, we think it's kind of risky right now to, to, to look at a deal and say, Hey, we have to refinance after two years, we have two year, you know, bridge debt. And then at that point, we either have, you know, we want to have a little bit of a longer window to be able to ride on any kind of storm that we may be facing uh, and not be forced to take action because that's where you find motivated sellers. And we do not want to be a motivated seller by any means. So um, that's what we're looking for. We want to basically want on a five-year hold. We want to be able to double our money and our investors' money uh, on a on a regular basis, and and hope hopefully even expedite that process and have that happen in the three to four-year window. But we, for us, it we need to be able to to confidently 
and conservatively be able to look at underwriting and say, hey, in five years, we think we're going to double our money. Mm -hmm. So when you when you think about the investors from the investor standpoint and how you're underwriting these deals or just putting all the numbers together to assess that annual return that you're expecting on these deals, you know, how are you guys, what are some assumptions financially that you guys are, you know, inputting into your models that are, you know, ensuring keeping a cushion um, for your investors? How are you guys implementing that? Sure. So I think the first thing is going to come down to the cap rate. So when we're looking to sell a property, we're looking at an exit strategy of say five years. We always want to assume that the economic condition that we're gonna be in is worse than it is today. So if we're buying a property at a four and a half cap, we want to sell that property with the assumption of at least a five and a half cap. We want to raise the exit cap rate by 20 to 25 basis points every year. Yep. Uh, and we think that that, that's, you know, and if you are looking at a spreadsheet, if you're looking at your underwriting, the smallest tweaks in your cap rate can really make or break a deal. So we want to have the most wiggle room there. We think that that is kind of the hinge point that if we can make it work with a higher cap rate, that's where, uh, a, you know, a base hit turns into a home run or, you know, a double into a grand slam kind of deal. Uh, but we, I, it's kind of scary. I don't know if you've looked at some other groups underwriting, but we've seen some underwriting where there, there's really not a lot of wiggle room there and kind of compressing that as much as possible to make the deal work. And that's, to me, that's where things can get a little bit dicey because you can, it's easy, even in commercial, to fall in love with the deal and say, man, this is the project for us and we're so close. If we just changed it from a five cap to a four and a half cap, it totally works. And especially when you have investor capital on the line, it's, you know, it's our fiduciary responsibility to be making the best decisions. We've done a couple of joint venture projects. Our risk tolerance is a little bit, we're, we're a little bit more open to take a risk if it's just us, if there's yeah. no investors involved. But when there's investors involved, whether whether or not it's family and friends or whether or not it's just accredited investors, the game changes and you have to you have to tighten up everything a little bit more. So that's that's the number one thing I think is cap rate um, looking and at for those who don't understand or know about cap rate. Can you just walk us through the calculation of it and why an increased cap rate at the sale um, matters in terms of the returns? Yep. So your cap rate or your capitalization rate is going to be your net operating income divided by your sales price. So it's a, it's a pretty basic formula. It's just those, those two elements that go into the calculation. But basically, whatever income you have left, once you, uh, once you extrapolate all your expenses, it's going to be your net operating income. And then you look at the sales price or how much you're paying for the property. And when you make that when you divide those two things, it's going to give you a cap rate. Typical cap rates are anywhere right now, I'd say in the three, probably closer to four, four to six range. Uh, and if you can look at it, you can look at some charts to see kind of where they've been historically over time. Uh, when my mentors got into this business about 10 years ago, they were buying stuff at eight to 10 cap rate, which yeah. is unbelievable. And it just, 
for for guys like you and me who are uh, who have not been around for ten years, it is astonishing. Yeah, those counted on our for one hand. Like, yeah, you forecast. typically can't. Yeah, you typically can't get to the second hand no. uh, in today's in today's. Really? Yeah, so um, it's it's pretty wild to to see that. And as interest rates change, cap rates can be slightly correlated to that. So we've seen an uptick in cap rates since interest rates have gone up. Uh, and that it's been good because we've actually gotten back to more of a sense of just normal fundamentals in real estate, because over the past couple of years, it's just been a feeding frenzy, whether it's residential or commercial, where people are just buying on crazy projected numbers. Uh, and, you know, just these, and the truth is over the past couple of years, most of those numbers have worked out. Even if you were, you know, putting into your underwriting 10% rent growth year over year. It's crazy, but we've actually hit that. Uh, That kind of ties into the next part of of that question. Like what other areas are you kind of trying to be conservative? Uh, It's it's growth, you know? Uh, So the markets that we look at are experiencing insane rent growth. We're talking 15 to 20% year over year rent growth. Even in Greenville, where you guys are at and Tucson? Greenville. We're, yeah, Tucson's closer to the 20%. Greenville's was 15% last year. That's crazy. So it, it's unbelievable. And what we project moving forward is 3%. 3% year over year rent growth. So if you have a year where you have 10 to 15% rent growth, which I don't think is out of the question for these markets continually as we're battling inflation as these are still affordable places to live. There's still kind of room in what we call the rent wallet, the percentage of people's income that goes to their rent. Uh, so we think that's very possible, but we would never project that. We're looking at a very uh, you know, non-sexy 3% year over year. And if it makes sense to us with 3% growth and in a higher cap rate, we're typically willing to take a deeper dive into it. Yep. I mean, those are the two biggest drivers of any deal. It all, it all starts at income, yep. right? So it's one of the, if not the most important to have conservative assumptions in that income number. So yeah, couldn't agree with you more on, on those things. Yeah. So what are you seeing in Tucson? Is it more of the same numbers as far as cap rate and um, income goes, or is it a little bit different? probably even a little bit more compressed as far as cap rates go. Uh, Phoenix has been probably one of the top three hottest markets, literally and figuratively speaking, um, <laughs> as far as the growth that they've had there. Uh, Phoenix has been more in the 20 to 25% rent growth. And people are buying stuff at, you know, value add stuff is going literally in the high two caps. Uh, and what we've seen in Phoenix is a lot of investors and residents have just moved an hour and a half south down to Tucson. Again, that's one of the reasons why we love it, but the investor capital that is being flooded into there. And a lot of that comes, a lot of the Phoenix investors come from California and a lot of that stuff is really trickling down into Tucson. And it's just made it a lot, like I said, it's a lot more difficult to find opportunities that really make sense with the way that we like to underwrite deals. Uh, As we look back now on some stuff that we looked at two years ago, we're kind of kicking ourselves because we, we've been very stringent on, hey, these are our numbers. It has to meet this criteria. And there's stuff that we've just missed out on 
and we look back on it now and, and we say that's you know that was a, a game-changing opportunity right there obviously especially in the height of covid we weren't willing to make those concessions we weren't willing to to budge and we're, we're still not willing to budge i mean it's still we're not just trying to buy properties just to say hey look we bought some properties we're trying to buy things that are going to make sense and are going to make uh, our families and our investors really happy. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about your analysis paralysis, basically looking at looking at the numbers way too much along with your colleagues. It, was there any point where you were questioning, you know, should you follow your gut or keep going or what was your thought process there? Yeah, there were times where I questioned, did I make a mistake even getting into this? just because we couldn't, we couldn't close on anything. I, I made the commitment to go all in on commercial real estate. And it took almost a year, almost a year to the day before I closed on my first property. And that was giving it everything I've got. And that's, that's coming with all the, the barely misses. And that's coming with all the heartache of like trying to, trying to build this business and then seeing some success of the people around you and questioning what am I doing wrong? Where, where am I missing the boat? Like how are other people closing on deals and I'm not? So I think so much to me, this, you know, you had mentioned mindset earlier. And I think like the psychology piece of this is so important. You need to learn the basics of how commercial real estate works. Absolutely. You need to understand the metrics. You need to understand the formulas. You need to understand the relationships that need to get built. But that I think is such a small piece of the overall puzzle of what creates a successful investor. Because I think a really successful investor, I think the biggest battle that you face that I have faced has been myself and those limiting beliefs that, hey, this is working for other people. I just don't know if it's for me. I've got this super safe and secure job. I've got this, I've got a great salary, you know, I've got this job security. I could do this for the next 30 years and probably retire comfortably. But so that's why I'm thankful that I got in enough discomfort with my job that I said, you know what? None of that stuff matters. I need to, I need to create a life of freedom that doesn't look on a 30 year horizon, you know, that is looking for this, the next three to five years, two to five years, whatever that may be. Um, so I think the psychology piece is just so important that you have to understand it's, you know, like there's, you're going to run, run up against these roadblocks that you put there when you, when you see other people closing deals and you just, you wonder like, am I doing the right thing? Uh, and you just have to, you have to have a good network around you of people that have been through that battle through that and say, Hey man, just, just keep your nose to the grind. Like you're gonna you're going to get there. Something is going to crack, you know? And then once we close that first deal, you know, it's the snowball starts to build. And then we close our next deal probably six months later and our next deal, another six months later. I mean, it's, nice. it's almost been on this like six month horizon for me. And it, that hasn't been planned out. That's just kind of the general way that things have fallen. Uh, and I've also not wanted to not bite off more than I can chew and do things the right way. And you know, there's a there's a, a process of stabilizing a property depending on how um, how much work it needs and you really want to be able to dedicate all your time and effort and energy into doing that the right way instead of just looking for the next deal 
So that's been my experience with it. And I hope now that we're at the point that we're at, that that snowball, as it continues to build, can just ramp up even more and, and dial in your, your, your systems even more and, and really start to get more efficient with all of your, all of your efforts. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point about systems, keeping things efficient, almost like a rip and reapply, but at the same time, continuously improving those processes um, to button up anything that could go awry. So I think there's, yeah, there's that Um, you mentioned conservative underwriting principles. Um, So if you're a passive investor and you're thinking about the risks of investing in one of your deals, you know, if they were them, what should they be looking, looking at um, outside of, you know, is your operator investing in himself? Are they dedicated towards the mindset? Are they underwriting these deals um, conservatively enough? Um, What other things um, should they be looking at? Yeah, I think, you know, we talk about you're betting on the horse, not the jockey. Um, So I think when you when you look at the sponsorship team, you have to, your people invest in people. Like, yes, they want a great opportunity. They want to know that the market's good, that the asset's good, that, that everything works as far as the, the spreadsheet goes. But really what you're, what you're investing in, you're investing in the operators and you want to know that they truly have your interest at the top of mind at all times. Um, and you, so you want to see their track record. You want to see what they've done on their future, um, on their, sorry, on their previous projects. You want to see what that, like what I want to see as a passive investor is I want to know what their why is. I want to know about their family life. I want to know what their exit strategy, like what their plan is in the next five to 10 years. I want to see I want to see how they've handled difficult situations because stuff comes up on properties. Not everything goes as planned. So if someone is just painting this rosy picture of like, yeah, it's just every project we've done is just, oh my God, it's just been from the second. Perfect. Yeah. (laughs) It's just perfect. Rainbows and butterflies. That's going to give me a little bit of hesitation. I want people to be upfront and honest and tell me about the struggles and what they've done to mitigate that because that's, because I'm betting that like when I invest my capital with you, that you're a not a stranger to those things when they have come up and B that you're going to be honest with me and let me know, you know, what's going on instead of just sending out a quarterly newsletter and saying, Hey, everything's going great down, down on main street. You know, I, I want to know is like, okay, you know, you, you had a, a tough month with, with evictions and that stuff happens, you know, especially when you're doing C-class properties you have, and you're raising the rents $200, that's, that's creating a, a large impact on your residents. Uh, and you're going to get residents that are not happy and that they're going to bring trash apartments. You're going to do these kind of things. So I want to really know that they're going to, they're going to communicate with me well. So that's probably the, the number one thing for me outside of looking at the numbers. Uh, and what we've actually put together is um, is a, a sheet that goes through. It's a checklist of all the things that you want to look at when you're looking at a deal, whether it's as a passive or an active investor. So that's one thing that, you know, because that question that you just asked, that's a question that comes up all the time. So we just wanted to get ahead of that and give all of our investors or anyone that wants to see it um, that that checklist and to say, hey, these, these are the things that we are checking. These are the things that we recommend that you check as well. The, the other piece that I think is really important, especially right now, 
is the debt that the operators are putting on their deals. So I think as a passive investor, you really should know what that looks like. Are you looking at fixed rate debt? Are you looking at a floating rate? Or are you looking at bridge debt? So uh, those are those are kind of the big things that, that I want to uh, look at when I'm looking at passive opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, reputation is key. When, when you look at that debt piece, and I love that you brought that up because it, when you look at the capital stack of the, of the deal, debt is usually at least, you know, 70, 80% of the deal. So it's a huge portion in today's times of rising interest rates. Maybe, you know, we're not too sure what's going to happen, how soft this landing is really going to be. And when you look at these instruments such as the bridge loan and doing interest only for two years you know how are you guys structuring these different debt instruments into your deals and how are you ensuring that you know those are you know conservatively underwritten yep so and it's a great question so we are going low leverage we're not going for 75 80 percent if you can even get that at this point um we're going for 65 on our current deal we're at 65% leverage. We could get over 70%, but we chose not to take that because we want to have that flexibility and that peace of mind built into the deal. Does that affect the cash flow a little bit? Yes. Um, so it still needs to meet all of our requirements with that. Um, and it's we just think that, you know, if we were to get into a situation where we had to do a refinance in three or five years, if you come in at low leverage, you're going to be so much better suited to do that. And that is a last resort, because like I said, we're not, we, we will, we just refuse to go into a deal where that is required, but we want to make sure that we have the flexibility to do that. So uh, so that's kind of the big thing for us. We're also looking at fixed rate. So we want, a, you know, whatever the length of the hold period is, that's a five-year hold. We want five years of fixed rate uh, debt on it. We don't want to have any kind of floating rate. We don't want, we don't want to have a rate that's going to change in two or three years. We just want to lock it up. And if we have to pay a little bit of a higher interest rate to do that, we are totally willing to do that. So that's the thing with interest rates going up. People always ask, how are you adjusting to it? It doesn't change that much. So the numbers that we plug into our spreadsheets, that changes, but the deal still has to meet all of our metrics with that. So, you know, it's, you're not making an emotional decision. You're making a business decision. So when interest rates go up, it changes what our purchase price is a little bit, uh, which is actually great that we can get in there and then still keep all the different levels of conservative underwriting. And if it makes sense, it, it makes sense. And if it doesn't, and someone's willing to pay more, that's fine. We move on to the next opportunity. Uh, and that's where just the repetition, looking at deal after deal after deal in the same market with the same brokers, working with the same banks. So you can just rinse and repeat the process. You're not spending half a day underwriting a deal that you're going to, you know, put six hours into it. And then you're like, Oh yeah, it still doesn't make sense. You know, we just want to be able to be super efficient and say, yeah, we're, we're willing to take a deeper look at it. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, that's where I think just, you know, we, we don't want to go high leverage right now. Yeah. And it, when I think about risk, risk adjusted, you know, returns that you guys are building in, you know, your, 
the risk on the debt is a little bit riskier, perhaps in some deals, but the way it seems like you guys are compensating for that to reduce that risk is to hold more of the equity in that cash position. So yep. it's not as leveraged, it's less risky, but ironically, the the potential upside is still there because those are still strong markets and the fundamentals from the economics, the macroeconomic view in those markets is still very strong. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So Jesse, really appreciate you coming on the show, sharing some golden nuggets and your insights. Um, I have one final question for you. Um, so what is one question you wish that I had asked? So one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to is Whitney Sewell. I don't know if you've listened to, to his podcast mm -hmm. at all. He asks every guest of his, how do you like to give back? And I think it's such a cool uh, thing to, to wrap into, into a podcast episode because it, it a lot of times changes. You know, we're, we're talking about real estate. We're talking about returns. But he likes to take a little bit further and say, hey, like, what are you, what are you doing to give back? Um, and basically, so that's the question that, that I guess I would say, you know, I, I wish you would have answered or asked. And my answer to that question is, so we've created a platform very similar to what you're doing. I love that, that you're doing this for the agricultural space because you know it, you can speak to it, you come from that. So for me and my partners who are also in the medical field, we decided to create a platform very similar to yours, where we are providing education to healthcare professionals on what we have found. Because as, as we have gotten a taste of how this can change our lives, we don't want to, we don't want to keep that to ourselves. We want to share that message with not so, and we don't only uh, take investors that come from the medical field. We don't say, Hey, if you're not wearing scrubs, you can't invest with us. Yeah. But those are the, those are the folks that we can really speak to. So we really want to give them every chance and opportunity to get to, 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 to find the education that we're putting out there. So we created a platform called wealth care capital partners. So we took healthcare and we just, we made it wealth care. And, uh, we, you know, we're putting out content on a regular basis writing blog posts, um, putting out videos and providing opportunities for people to, to, to learn about what we're doing and how they can incorporate that in their lives. So, um, you know, that, and then the, our deal analyzer is, uh, is the last, the last thing that we just put out. So, uh, I'll, I'll share that with you and maybe you can put that in your show notes for, for the listeners, if they want to check it out totally free. Um, and it's just, it shows all the things that we look at and we think it would be good for you to look at as a passive investor. Absolutely. Love it, Jesse. And I'll include all of that. Where else can people get a hold of you? So you, the email is probably the best way to get a hold of me. Just jesse at wealthcarecap.com. And jesse is J-E-S-S-E, no I. All right. Sounds great, man. Well, Jesse, thank you again to all of our listeners. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to next time. See you guys. Thanks. Peace. Thanks, Casey. Yep. See ya.